Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're going to be talking about the DC books for the week of August 24th, 2021. Another big week, 15 books for DC Comics, including one that's uh, an anthology, so more than one story, uh, and then backup stories in, in a few others, like uh, action comics and detectives. So uh, a lot to talk about. Um, and maybe one of the things we should talk about, we recorded the last episode a little early because Rocky was going to be out of town. We didn't really get a chance to talk about this massive shift at DC with James Tynan basically leaving Batman. Now, he wasn't kicked off, he wasn't fired, and he didn't quit in a huff, right? He, the situation was that he had a choice. He was offered another exclusive contract with DC, a three-year contract, which would have included continuing to write Batman. And while he's trying to make that decision, he gets offered from my understanding, six figures, um, which a lot of creators did from a platform called Substack. Now, if you're not familiar with Substack, it's basically kind of like a blog. You know, you can you can go to Substack and search for any number of creators and you sign up for a newsletter and they basically email you whatever, you know, whatever their schedule is, twice a week, three times a week, once a week, once every three weeks, whatever it is, they email you their newsletter. And, hey, here's my updates, right? So that's what Substack is. But there, there's an uh, there's architecture within Substack that they can charge you for that newsletter if they want. They can charge you per month. They can charge you per year. You know, whatever amount they want. And what Substack has done is they they want more people using their platform, basically, because they want the value of the platform to increase so they can sell it to some big tech company, Google or Apple or Microsoft or someone like that, right? So they they need to show that there's a lot of people that use Substack. There's a lot of subscribers. Right. They want to show just like any technology company, they want to show a revenue stream. So the way they did that was they got a bunch of venture capital money to invest in Substack and they turned around and took that venture capital money and they offered it to big name creators, creators that they thought could bring in subscribers so they can show that revenue stream so they can show the company's worth value and they can sell it off. The venture capitalists get back their money they invested plus they make a profit. Right. That That's what's going on here. So. Tynan had a choice. Hey, do I want to keep uh, writing Batman? And if you've been reading his newsletter, it used to be free, and he still does offer, I think, once a week free, and the rest now is behind a, a paid uh, subscription. But he, he's talking about what a nightmare it was when he first was brought on Batman. Because if you remember, he was going to do 5G, and then he made a couple pitches, and then none of his 5G stuff got picked up. So then he was just going to fill in on Batman between the time time Tom King left and 5G started when John Ridley was going to take over. And he talked about it in a recent newsletter about what a nightmare it was because they were constantly shifting. DC couldn't decide. Editorial couldn't decide what they wanted to do with, with Batman. Are we going to go in this direction? Are we going to go in that direction? And so Tynan's trying to plan out his run. And every time he's planning something, they're like, no, you can't use that character. And the next day, oh, you can. And the next day, oh, no, you can't. So that's really the secret behind why he came up with so many new characters in his Batman run. It wasn't necessarily that he wanted to give away all this IP to DC. It was because he knew if he created characters, then no DC editorial, they, they wouldn't have any plans for those characters. Nobody at DC editorial would have been, no, you can't do this with Clown Hunter. No, you can't do that with Ghostmaker because they had no idea these characters even existed. They, they were just all in, in James's head. So when it came down to it, he had the choice. Do I re-up at DC? Do I go in a different direction? Well, when... When someone's offering you, 
you know, over $100,000 to go and make your own stuff, that's a pretty tempting offer. It's way more than he would make at DC. Plus, the other thing about Substack is, yeah, so they create the comics or digital comics are delivered right to your email address. You can read them right there in your email browser. But the other thing is you retain all the rights. You're not sharing those rights with anybody. He's not sharing, you know, the rights of these new properties he's going to create the way he has to give up most of the rights to ghost maker or clown hunter or Molly maker or, or miracle Molly or, or any of these other characters that he's created, right? He owns it all. So if anything happens with a movie or TV down the line, he gets that money animated series. He gets that money. Plus he also at some point can print those comics. He can go to a, a publisher and say, Hey, I'll give you a small cut. All I need you to do is print these books. You know, uh, Substack doesn't take any rights at all. All Substack cares about is how many people are subscribing to Tynan's newsletter and his his content. You know, basically these digital comics will be delivered in this newsletter. So it wasn't just Tynan. Scott Snyder, who already had been taking a year-long break from D.C., he's doing a comic book uh, class, writing class through Substack. Jonathan Hickman has left the X-Men, not Marvel necessarily, he still has other plans for another corner of the Marvel Universe that he hasn't worked in before, he says. But he's got, uh, you know, he took the Substack money. So did Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. So did Saladin Ahmed. And, you know, all these with different levels of, I'm sure, investment, because some of them are bigger names than others. Tynan and, and Hickman probably being the big ones. Chip Zdarsky is another one. So it's this seismic shift in the way comics are, are being delivered. Now, will this stick long term? You know, I have no idea. Who can say We've seen this sort of thing before where something makes a big splash and there's a lot of money behind it. And then, you know, it fades away pretty quickly. There's, there's no way to really know. Uh, I, I personally don't have a problem with digital comics. And I also don't have a problem with these, with these comic creators getting the money when, where they can, right? I mean, if you're a freelancer, there's no retirement. There's no insurance. There's no guarantee that you're not going to get kicked off a book at any moment. So I don't begrudge them taking the money while they can. I know some people are kind of upset about it. And some other people have said, well, Substack, you know, they, they've given voice or been a platform for other people, you know, who, who are espousing ideas that, that we don't agree with or And I, like, I get that. Right. But Saladin Ahmed, actually, he had a really good point. He's like, so does that mean that we just all abandon Substack and we don't, we don't take advantage and we, we just sort of cede this, this uh, platform to these hateful people. Like, why don't we fight for it? You know, like, why don't we plant our flag here, too? And and hopefully the powers that be at Substack realize we have more value and we're more tolerant and we're uh, better in the long run for the profitability of, of Substack. So, you know, your mileage may vary. I, I, I sort of see I can see both sides of the argument. I don't have a dog in the fight. I did put out some money to subscribe to a few of these people because I'm curious what's going to happen. And, you know, I've said it 100 times. Digital is really the the newsstand of of yesteryear, right? Like we talk about, well, how can we get more people reading comics? Well, digital is the answer because there there is no more spinner rack at your local Seven Eleven or Circle K or Barnes and Noble or or whatever. The way to reach people, hey, we've all got a spinner rack in our pockets in the form of a you know a smartphone. That's really the kind of the wave of the future. And if we want to get more people reading comics, we want the industry to survive. It just has to be the way that we go. And I know that retailers worry about, you know, how it's going to affect the direct market and whatnot. And, 
you know, it was all doom and gloom. If you remember, Rocky, when they announced day and date, right? Like when DC said, we're going to start releasing the digital comics on the same day as the print comics. Yeah. But that's not, that isn't reality. That's not w- what's happened. In fact, the, in terms of, of comics being sold, and I, I get it, like sometimes it's Dogman or it's the latest Raina Tel- Telgemeier, um, and it's not necessarily DC or Marvel that are selling, you know, maybe it's manga or whatever, but the bottom line is people are still reading comics. And if the, if Marvel and DC want to survive, they're going to have to figure out a way to adapt because for a lot of people, when you say comics, that's what people think of Marvel and DC. But when I say comics, I mean so much more than that these days, because really we've seen it ourselves in our own shows that the independent is where it's at right now in terms of excitement and new stories and, and whatnot. So yeah, we still love Marvel and DC, but you know maybe they need to 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 look, take a big hard look at what they're doing. Maybe they need to pay their creators more. Maybe they need to offer you know profit sharing. I, like I don't know what the answer is. Um, maybe they need to stop worrying so much about protecting these IPs. Um, again, I, I don't I don't know. Like I get it. You don't want to not sell pajamas and you know, ice cream bars and t-shirts or whatnot. But at the same time, you got to keep the comics exciting. So things are shifting, you know, DC themselves announced that we're going to have some webtoon content coming from DC at some point, which webtoons a free platform and it's international. So how that all plays out, I guess we'll see, but uh, exciting, exciting times uh, and changing times for sure. So uh, anything you want to add Rocky before we dive into the books? Well, we, uh, we, who, those of us who love reading comic books digitally, I mean, now we just have to factor in, do you want to pay $7 uh, per your favorite writer? $7 for Tinian, $7 for Snyder, $7 for Hickman, $7 for uh, Teeny Howard, $7 for, you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, if you rack up, suddenly you've got 10 writers that you like, I mean, you're, you're $70 a month and you're not even owning a physical comic book uh, unless you qualify for the top tier and you want to pay even more bucks for that. So now a lot of people just read digital and that's fine. Uh, you know, I'm old school. And I just want to put out there that I know I know Dogman is, is, is not technically a comic per se. I, I mean, it is, but it's for a younger crowd. But I mean... You know, the writer of Dogman, I mean, uh, he, he doesn't, I don't know, to my knowledge, he doesn't have a subscription service. You know, people buy his stuff off the rack. I mean, it just seems, um, I don't know. I, I understand why creators need to do this, and I and I and all the power to them. I will be checking some of it out. I was a fan. I, I enjoyed Thrill, Brent, uh, Thrill Bent when Mark Wade had that uh, online comic service for a while. I enjoyed it. So I'll be checking some of them out, but I'd be lying if I said that I don't, I'm not really looking forward to, you know, attacking more stuff onto my, my pocketbook. And the other thing here is a lot of these great, these are all good writers, Tinian, Snyder, et cetera. They're all good writers. But at the same time, these young, new, up and coming, passionate writers for DC right now, I'm enjoying DC. I don't know if I necessarily need to drop another $70 in another medium when I'm enjoying the physical copies and the, what I'm reviewing here with for the big two right now. So we live in interesting times. I'll just put it that way. So uh, we just, we got more variety and well, it's going to be very interesting to see how this new, this new way of approaching comic books uh, w- works its way out. Yeah. It's a good point you make. I mean, it all comes down to value, right? Like if you're paying your $7 a month, if that's how you choose to do it, I think most of them go $7 a month or, or $70 for the year. So you basically get two months free, but how, you know, like, what is that getting you? You know, like, Seven dollars is less than the price of two DC comics, but are you getting two 
two comics worth of content. Like how often are they releasing content? It could be, it could be more. They could be releasing weekly, you know, 20 pages weekly. That's like getting four, four comics. Um, so yeah, I mean, people have well, finite but, budgets, but here, here's my question. Like, why would I do like, why wouldn't I just wait three or four months and then subscribe? And why wouldn't I wait three or four months in, then pay, then subscribe for one month, and I can read the previous four or five months free anyway? Can I? Wow, that's so, a good. That's a that's a you know really I mean? good point. See, why wouldn't I just Why wouldn't I just wait a year? Why won't I just? I'm just going to wait a year. I got so many comics to read as it is. I can wait a year, subscribe in the eleventh month, and read the previous ten months free. Why would I? Why would I waste seventy well, bucks? That's assuming, yeah, that's assuming they leave that content up there. But I get your, I get your point. Um, and 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 to your to your other point, like. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're a person that likes to collect books and you want it in print, and and a lot of these people have said these comics are going to be in print eventually, then why wouldn't you wait anyway? I mean, really, I think what it comes down to is, do you want to be part of the the community? Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to subscribe to to every single person that's doing this, but you know, if you're a big James Tynan fan, if you're a big Jonathan Hickman fan, you know, and you want to be a part of it, um, then yeah, maybe you you go ahead and 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 jump on it. So yeah, it, it, it's pretty interesting, but again, I, it all comes down to value. Uh, I'm certainly not subscribing to every, I think I subscribed to like four people. I think I, I think I signed up for Tynan and, and Hickman. And again, I almost wish I hadn't signed up for Hickman. I'm not the biggest Hickman fan, but I didn't know that all these other was going to come out of the woodwork as well. So I did Hickman, Tynan, Zadarsky, and Saladin Ahmed, whose work I, I really enjoy also. And that's it. That's all I, that's all I did. So I didn't go, go crazy with it and, and we'll see we'll see how it it turns out and if you know i don't feel the value is there then i may uh i may give it up so yeah. anyways let's sorry <laughs> mom just walked in the door dog's going crazy uh, somebody wants to review join us yeah we should uh, you should, uh, you right, should... Well, let's go ahead and dive in to Action Comics number 1034, War World Rising Part 5. It's from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. The art is by uh, Christian Doucet, which, you know, which is a departure from the Daniel Sampier that we've had before. And well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it if we're disappointed with that or not. Uh, Adriana Lucas handles the colors and Dave Sharp handles the letters. Uh, and there is a backup as well that we'll talk about. But uh, what were your thoughts on this, uh, this issue of action, Rocky? Uh, well, this one is, uh, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, uh, does, uh, this is a part five of world, uh, war world rising. And, uh, last issue ended with, uh, Mongols, uh, servants, uh, pulling a device, uh, from the heart of one of their own. And, uh, it was, we, we discover that it was actually an orphan box and, and they end up uh, attacking uh, uh, Thialo or Th Theola, and oh, pardon me. They end up. They end up. Uh, they end up. I guess they're they're trying to escape. I mean, this was all Mongol planned on sending all these refugees to Earth. This was all part of Mongols' master plan. And so, uh, essentially, Theola and all these uh, the these servants of Mongol. Wearing these chains, there they, they were sent there, and they, they anticipated being captured. And in the heart of one of these uh, these refugees, or these, 
I don't know what you call a Mongol servants there, was this something called an orphan box. And the orphan box serves to bestow power on the person who, who holds it. And they use that to escape. And essentially, uh, Lois shows up with the gun uh, last issue, you know, making sure they don't escape. And, and this issue, it has Theola sort of rushing in to protect Lois. And uh, she does a reasonably good job. But it's clear that uh, it's clear that Mongol servants here uh, they they anticipated that uh, Theola would would betray Mongol and her betrayal was even somewhat anticipated and so they try to take her out and um, Mongol's very clever he knows Superman and he clearly has studied Superman he 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 knew that Superman would take them in that Superman would have have compassion this mongol is a lot more intelligent than his than his father mongol uh, because remember that it was the son of mongol that killed mongol and uh this mongol seems to anticipate superman is using superman's own compassion against him and and very much uh and just the way that mongol has utilized superman's used superman's compassion against him to infiltrate uh, him th- through the fortress and uh, you know, Theola, uh, Theola is, she's incapacitated and Mongol's other servants who are there, they end up uh, killing uh, some, her two other refugees and uh, that causes Theola to, to b- burst out with her version of heat vision because over, it's taken, it's taken probably a number of weeks or a, or a number of days while Theola has been there at the fortress to get powered up because she's a, She's a Philosian or Philosian and she's Philosians are, I guess you could say almost like ancient Kryptonians. And it took a while, I think, for her powers to manifest. And she might have slightly different powers under the under a yellow sun than uh, uh, trip, typical Kryptonians do. But in any event, she literally melts them, vaporizes them. And um, and then then she turns on Lois because she realizes she she's she's very, very uh very likely traumatized she's torn between her she's torn between being loyal to mongol and afraid of what she de- what might happen to her friends probably back on war world if she doesn't obey mongol and essentially uh, you know kill lois and uh, you know attacks the superman family meanwhile superman does something finally superman gets involved politically he he gets involved in the dispute between the Atlanteans and the U.S. government over the Genesis fragment that was found on the Warzone warship that brought those uh Mong- that brought those refugees to Earth in the first place, and the Atlanteans and the U.S. Uh, government they cut they come to blows, forcing Superman to take a stand, and Superman gets involved. He breaks up their their dispute, and he makes an executive decision whether whether they like it or not, and much to Aquaman's chagrin Superman just goes and he, he simply takes the, the Genesis fragment and Aquaman warns him that uh, you know he says to him I thought it would be Bruce <laughs> I might not be able to stop you Clark but if you do this it will change things between us and of course Superman takes a Genesis fragment because it's too powerful to be used by either Atlanteans or or any government on earth and he's taking it with him and as he's flying off, it's kind of ironic that he is uh, Kara, Supergirl, who's usually the one to act impulsively, and even her, his son, you know, they question his, his decision. Are you sure you did the right thing? 
And then they, they discover that they, they don't hear anything back at the fortress. Oh my God, something's happened back at the fortress because they can't hear anything. And the reason why they couldn't hear anything before, because they're usually attuned to it, is, is, is because the orphan box uh, that the that the Mongol servant sort of ripped out of their one's other servant's chest, the orphan box created a sound, uh, created a, uh, an environment that Superman could not see or could not hear. So that's why they were able to uh, escape... Uh, escape their bondage or their, their imprisonment by Superman as they did. Superman and uh, John Kent, Kara, they fly to the fortress. They see they see the dead Felosians and their Superman cries out for Lois. And uh, that's when uh, it's clear that uh, well, John Kent is attacked and Theola is there, you know, and she's, she's pretty much crying and she doesn't want to do what she has. She doesn't want to attack them, but she doesn't feel she has much of a choice. And this is... Uh, you know, a lot happens this issue. I got to give uh, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson a lot of credit. I think we, we're finally getting movement on this narrative. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I, I think I could, I could see the genius of Mongols' plan here. That, that the use of an or what they call an orphan box in one of the prisoners that they ripped out last issue. I thought that was ingenious. How it bestows upon them some powers. Fiola coming into her own with her power set manifesting more as she becomes more powerful uh, due to exposure to uh, the sunlight on Earth. I thought it was quite good. Ending with John Kent attacking Theola. This is, uh, you can definitely see where this is. Uh, things are really ramping up here and you can see the struggle that Theola has in terms of, you know, not wanting to do what she feels she has to do. She's very much torn between being a servant of Mongol, uh, but yet she has a mission that she's she's fearful of what will happen if she doesn't uh, listen to you follow her orders. And I thought it was I thought it was great. The art by Christian uh, Deuce was fantastic. Adrian O'Color, the colors by Adrian Lucas were great. Uh, Dave Sharp on the lettering. Very well done. Very well done. The expressions on Superman's face when he realizes that Lois might be hurt. I thought it was very well done. Very well done. And um, I, I love the I love the interaction between the Atlanteans and the U.S. government and Superman. I love this more proactive Superman that he took a stand. I, I kind of like this. You know, I, I kind of like this being a little bit more international in terms, you know, dare I call it political, but I kind of like this Superman a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm talking about Kalal here, you know, being a little bit more proactive and and maybe, you know, maybe his son John Kent has maybe taken a few uh, notes from his father as he becomes more proactive in his own series, uh, Son of Kalal, which we'll also be reviewing this week. But uh, what do you think of it, Chase? Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. It's interesting, the the way this reads a little differently than w what Superman Son of Kal-El does and, and how they sort of play off each other. It's very interesting. Uh, I'll talk about the art first. So Christian Doucet, uh, you know, as, as uh, Rocky alluded to, great emotional beats, uh, especially so there's one panel where he, he zooms in on Kal-El's eyes uh, when he first realizes that Lois might be hurt, and then when he actually gets to the Fortress of Solitude, the look on his his face, that sort of the, that panic look, as he's calling out Lois, you know, where is she? The, those are are really good images. Um, does it? And I, again, I hate to compare uh, artists against each other, but I guess I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it doesn't quite have that transcendent feel that Daniel Sampier's art has, and and I think. What Sampir does, the, the big difference, well, first of all, line weight. Um, Daniel Sampir's art has uh, uh, 
lighter line weight. They're not as heavy. And so that allows the art to feel uh, a little more kinetic. Um, it, it's not quite as weighty. Um, and the other thing Sam Pierre does, his double page spreads are, are more montage pieces um, as opposed to just big giant action pieces where it just feels like, well, that's a panel just kind of blown up. Um, but that's not to say that, that Ducey's art is not spectacular. And I think it's similar enough. Uh, and then uh, the other part of that is Adriana Lucas's colors. You know, they were on Sam Pierre, they're on Ducey here. So in terms of when this is going to be collected, I think it'll, it'll play fine. It won't pull you out of the story. The art is not that uh, dissimilar. And Ducey does a great job, like I said, both in the, the emotional beats and that scene where uh, Theola kind of loses it and, and lets her uh, version of, of Heat Vision go and, and disintegrates uh, Mongols' shock troops. I mean, that, that's, that's a brutal panel, man, just watching those guys kind of disintegrate. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, as far as the story itself, uh, kind of what I've been waiting for, you know, I, I think I mentioned it several times ever since that fragment fell into the hands of the Atlanteans that Kal-El just needs to go and take it, you know, like people, if, if they won't make the right decision for themselves, I mean, sometimes you have to protect people from themselves, right? You got to, you know, in, in terms of in the IT world where I live, you know, when you do certain things, we call it idiot proofing, you make things you create things or you architect things in such a way that people aren't, they, they can't hurt themselves. They can't click on a certain thing or delete a certain thing. If it's going to cause them problems, right? You, you idiot proof it. Um, man's got to sometimes do this sort of thing. You know, I, I know he hates to overstep his authority and he wants people to make decisions for themselves. Um, but I, I almost think what I was saying earlier about him taking the, the fragment off the table sooner would have been a, a better choice because, you know, when he finally does it, it's because they're, the Atlanteans and, and humans are about to go to war. They're, there's about to be bloodshed. There's about to be loss of life. It's become this big thing between them. Um, and Aquaman even says, you know, if you do this, things will never be the same between us. Well, you know what, Arthur, I'm sorry. At this point, um, this needs to go away. And, and again, I go back to thinking if he'd done this sooner, then the – a relationship that the you know diplomatic relationship between the surface world and the Atlantis may have deteriorated to the point that it got to right. So even now that the fragment's gone and that's not a point of tension, it might not matter. They may end up coming to blows on something else now because the diplomacy's sort of fallen apart. The relationship is is uh, is damaged, right? Whereas if he'd gotten rid of it sooner. You know, when he first said he was going to take it, and Aquaman was like, no, this was in the water. Atlantis got it first, and he, he kind of backed off. I, I sort of wish that he didn't. Um, and I don't – I mean, I can see why people would make the argument that that's a political choice. But for me, it's not. Um, I, I don't think it's Superman choosing a side. I think it's Superman staying neutral. He's not saying, uh, okay, Atlantis is going to keep it. He's not saying the surface world's going to have it. He's saying, I'm taking it. I'm taking it. No one can be trusted with it. That's it. So in a way, it's sort of being apolitical. Uh, but by doing that, he's he's allowing the politics and the diplomacy between the, the surface world and Atlantis to, to not deteriorate to the point that it did. So, um, But it's good stuff from, from Philip Kennedy Johnson, and, and I think that it shows uh, another aspect of his ability as a writer to be a, a really good um, world builder. Because when you do build worlds, 
that are inhabited with with people. And if everybody's not of the same race or the same nationality or, you know, whatever they identify as the same gender, even uh, then you have you have politics, you have politics involved. And even if everybody is the same gender or, or everybody's gender free and of the same race, there's always individual politics, right? There's always people that have different motivations and different uh, goals. So you're always, you know, in, in social societies, you're always going to have a push and pull. You're always going to have people that, that don't see eye to eye. And that's inherent. Inherently in that comes comes politics. That's what politic is, right? So I think it's pretty interesting. Is it my favorite kind of Superman story? Mm, no, probably not. But... Uh, I love the agency of Superman making that choice. And I find it very interesting, especially considering what we saw in this week's um, Son of Kal-El issue two, that John's questioning whether or not he made the right choice. It's interesting to see Kara wonder if he's made the right choice because we know Kara, usually as a result of letting her temper get the best of her, be impetuous and be impulsive and make decisions for uh, others in such a way. So in a way, it's a little bit of both, both the uh, criticism of both Kara and uh, John uh, of Kal-El in this issue is a little bit of uh, the kettle calling the pot black in, in a way. Um, yeah. But we all know what this is leading to. We know it's Superman going to leave Earth. And uh, I, I'm kind of you know, I haven't mentioned much about the uh, Theola storyline because I don't really know what to think yet. That's the part of the story that I'm still, I still feel like we're just in the beginning stages. Um, you know, the, the seeds were planted right from the start of, of when we learned that she's part of this ancient Kryptonian, um, you know, offshoot. We know Clark's going to leave Earth. We know he's going to go to Warworld and try to rescue them, even though, uh, from my understanding, the war world is not close to Yellow Star, so he's you know in a weakened state, and he holds the chains or or Mongol. You know, it's kind of like George Foreman naming all his kids George Mongol. The yeah. son of Mongol is always Mongol. Yeah. It's just you know the Mongol who who preceded or Mongol who came before the Mongol who came after, whatever they however they designate. Um, that part I'm 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 still kind of up in the air about. I you know I've talked about before. I, I don't think a war world or a Superman away from earth story is really necessary because in my mind, I'm always going to compare it to the Superman exile storyline that Roger Stern did back in the nineties, which to me is like the best story of Superman ever leaving earth ever. Um, and so I'm going to be comparing it, you know, fairly or not to that. Cause to me, that's the gold standard and whether or not this can live up to it. I, I you know, I have my doubts, but yeah, I mean, this is certainly, head and shoulders above the um, kind of angsty Superman, John Kent relationship kind of stuff that we got for the first couple issues of Philip Kenny Johnson. There's action here. There's emotion. There's uh, interesting plot points uh, that are, are getting the readers invested into what's going to happen next. So yeah, all in all a pretty solid issue. Um, I know Daniel Sampier has announced that he's leaving the book. He only has a couple more issues left. So that kind of uh, disappoints me a little bit. But I do hope that if he does leave, that Christian Ducey is the replacement artist because he did a, a pretty uh, damn good job on this one. So yeah, he did. Uh, there, there is a backup story as well. Um, it's more of the uh, Midnighter and now Mr. Miracle story that um, Becky Cloonan and Michael Avon Oming have been telling. Um 
And this is actually the last backup we're going to get because the end of the story is going to be in the Midnighter 2021 special. So as I mentioned, Becky Clune and Michael Conrad are the writers. Michael Avon Oming does the art. Taki Soma is the colorist and Dave Sharp is uh, the letterer. And I feel like it's starting to make a little more sense. It's starting to come together a little bit. And I certainly feel like if you read this all in one sitting, you know, you read the future state stuff first and then go and read these backups all collected together. It would make a coherent story, which it all, it hasn't always felt that way as backups. Um, but to me, it still isn't really that interesting. I'm not a big um, Midnighter fan, although I'm becoming more and more of a, a Shiloh Norman fan uh, because I think the, the Mr. Miracle, the, the, uh, the source of freedom miniseries has been absolutely spectacular and has exceeded my yes. expectations a thousand fold. I, I agree. Um, it's excellent this yeah, week too. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I remember, I feel almost bad. I remember saying Scott free is my Mr. Miracle who asked for a Shiloh Norman, Mr. Miracle. And nobody asked for it. This is one of those um, situations where the, the editorial and, and the creators are correct in saying, don't give the fans what they ask for. Or, or want, but give them what they need. That I mean, this Mr. Miracle has been a, a, a perfect example of that. So I don't know if that's why uh, I've been enjoying this more lately, or maybe it's just because it's becoming a little more clear what's going on. Um, but like I said, I do think that this story will make a lot more sense all collected. And when they do collect it, I hope they include the parts of the story from the Future State book and put it all together in one uh, trade paperback. That being said, I won't read it again <laughs> because I, it, I'm just not that invested. I'm just not a Midnighter fan. Never have been. He's never been a character that's interested me. Um, and and you know, not to sound like a broken record, but when it comes to Michael Avon Oming, I just don't think his art suits a superhero book. He's much better at like slice of life or um, or crime noir. So this has been getting better. But it's still not my particular cup of tea. But I think if you're a Midnighter fan, that you will probably enjoy it. I'll put it that way. So uh, what did you think about the backup, Rocky? Well, I, I said the same thing, I think, pretty much every time I reviewed the backup on this. And that is that I, 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 I still maintain that uh, uh, it's, it's confusing. I, I mean, I do get it, uh, but I've had to die divest too much time into just trying to figure out the general plot and the, the sort of like the paradox that they're in. I figure what they call it. The, there's a paradox time loop that they're in where his future consciousness is sent back to his past self and he's got to prevent the future of future state from happening. And this Andre Trojan eventually is going to destroy all of, wants to destroy all of humanity and be, wants to make sure that it's better to be a robot than a human being. And I mean, okay, I get it. And then they stole the mother box from Mr. Mary. Miracle, and so Midnighter rescues Mr. Miracle in this issue, and Mr. Miracle helps him because he 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 has Mr. Miracle gets his mother box back, and the mother box is being used by by the present day Andre Trojan to uh, continue his machinations to ultimately mine Neridium, which is the exhaust from War World, which can be used uh, to create a as a weapon that's even more dangerous and powerful than Kryptonite, apparently. And uh, in any event, so it's it's all tied into the future of future state. And to be honest with you, I actually think I describe it uh, in a more interesting manner than it actually reads. And if people don't think that I described it very interesting, well, then I would suggest you don't read it. 
Um, <laughs> now, now I, I, that might sound egotistical of me, but so be it. I'm going to stand by what I said. Uh, but in any event, uh, it, it's all right. What, sadly, though, this is this isn't even over yet. Here, Th- this is actually going to end in a midnight or 2021 special. So this is going to be included in, I guess, the equivalent of an annual. But they're calling it a special because this isn't a series in which you can call it an annual. So the fact that we're going to have another 40 pages to end all of this, I just think is just uh, painful. But I mean, hopefully it'll resolve okay. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, the, a final issue of something can, they can go back and they can re-explain what they actually, what the story was supposed to mean. And, and sometimes in the re-explaining of a narrative, I understand it better when they re-explain it. Uh, so maybe, you know, I, I, thank God we review these digitally because I, I will not be picking up the, 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 the special in, in physical form, but I'm yeah, just, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way. Um, and part of me is like, oh man, so I can't, I don't get to read it in a small chunk. I've got to read a big chunk. But I think so much of it, and again, I'm not saying Michael Avon Omin is not a good comic artist. He's got great storytelling skills, and I think yeah. you know, like, look, just look at Powers. I mean, that's oh, a yeah. fantastic, I, fantastic. I agree series. with you. He's, he's a talent. He's a talented artist, but this wasn't yeah. his cup of tea here. It just, it just never. Fell. Yeah. And I, yeah, I feel like if that special has another, just an artist whose whose art is more dynamic, that could pull me into the story more. I, yeah, but I feel like choosing him as the artist didn't do the story any any favors. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's frustrating because again, uh, I think that that Mister Miracle series has been fantastic, and it, it does have me more interested in uh, in checking out the story. So <laughs> anyway, speaking of fantastic art, let's move on to the next book: Batman Reptilian Number Three from writer Garth Ennis, art colors uh, by Liam Sharp, letters by Rob Steen. Uh, so this is that black label book, and I st- still we the, the the big villain is still a mystery. Who is it? We don't know, but it is a different version of Batman, as uh, Rocky has talked about before. And and more so than that, I find what I'm enjoying. This is a different version of Alfred, and this version of Alfred I I love uh, because he doesn't really. He just has such a dry sense of humor. He doesn't really put up with Bruce. He he calls Bruce on his on his crap basically, and Bruce just sort of has to take it. And it's sort of like the relationship, like the the relationship between Alfred and Bruce in this series. I kind of liken to the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Terry McGinnis in the Batman Beyond uh, series, especially in the cartoon. You know, where th- this is an Alfred that's kind of he's wise to, to Bruce's like self delusions, you know, and he calls him on his crap. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, that's where a lot of the humor from the book comes in. And then as far as the art from Liam Sharp, I mean, my God, um, Liam, he, he really has evolved so much over the past two years. You know, it used to be, his art was, was hyper detailed pencils. Uh, and he would, you know, he, he told me personally at times where he would lose himself he, working digitally where he had the ability to zoom in and he would just work on all this detail and then, you know, lose hours of time working on the detail and then shrink it back down and realize that in, in the size that it's going to be printed, that detail didn't even show up. Um, and 
uh, I still love that style. I still yeah. love when he does those hyper detailed uh, pencil work. But I feel like this style that he sort of has evolved into, which which started with his uh, The Green Lantern series that Grant Morrison wrote, I feel like this is more true to who, who Liam is. You know, this is the art that's in his DNA in terms of what he loved growing up, you know, whether it be Frazetta or John Bolton or, or um, even Dave McKean. Um, and it's more about instead of, seeing this this detail or this hyper realistic uh you know world and and characters and background it's more about the emotion that the art invokes um and i know liam's loving this and uh, you know creating art in this style and it suits the kind of story they're telling because this story is so much about mood right like when this is the third issue and we actually look at the, the action that's happened we could describe it in a couple sentences right like uh, there's some sort of mysterious creature that's attacking Gotham criminal figures and Batman's trying to figure out who he is, who that mysterious uh, monster or, or person is. That That's basically it. That's the story. It's very simple. Um, yeah. And then there's all this layered nuance uh, that's added into the story, whether it be that relationship from Alfred and Batman that I was talking about, whether it be the fact that Batman's not very broken up over the fact that these villains have been, uh, you know, mutilated and taken off the table and some of them are outright dead. And uh, Alfred even says at the beginning of this issue, Joker and Croc are all that's left. And uh, Batman's like, yeah, well, you know, that's kind of how it goes. It's not a big deal. It's all right. Yeah, not a big deal. It's cool. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's not like it's this super complicated story, but so much of why the story works has to do with the art and the style that Liam Sharp is bringing to the story because it really is transcendent art. It's, it's, it's impactful. Like you op- you can open the book up to any page, flip to any page and look at it. And the, the emotion, the mood, the, the darkness that is conveyed uh, in the art by Liam Sharp has everything to do with why it works. Um, and I can't help but think of how different this book would be. So originally, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Liam had, had talked about it, I think, on, on Twitter maybe, or I, I read it in an interview. Uh, but anyway, he had said that originally this um, project was supposed to be Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. Um, and Steve Dillon, you know, fantastic artist, left us way too soon. But but his art's wildly different um, from from this style of Liam's art. So what would that have been like? I feel like it would have had a more sort of militant feel, if that makes any sense. You know, I can't, yeah. I mean, it, it would have been a lot like his Punisher series. I think visually. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why I, uh, I, I, I use that word militant because the Dylan art that I'm most familiar with is that pun is his Punisher work, you know, and it, it, that is a very kind of, you know, militaristic sort of feel. Um, and would I have enjoyed that as much? I, who's to say, uh, I mean, I would have enjoyed if Steve Dillon is still here producing art for us. That would be fantastic because uh, he got taken way, way too soon. Um, so obviously I would love that. But um, it would have had such a different feel. And, um, you know, <laughs> the reality is Steve, Steve Dillon is, you know, it had passed away far too soon. And we have Liam working on this book. And this is going to be one of those books that I feel like is always going to be in print. 
at, at DC. You know, it's going to be an evergreen story. And I can't wait to see exactly what Garth Innesism, to coin a phrase, we're going to get at the end. Because you know there's – it's Garth Innes. You know there's going to be some crazy plot twist or some crazy um, curveball that he throws at us where it, it's going to be something different than we expect. All, all the breadcrumbs are sort of leading us to believe that – this monster or this being or whoever it is is related to Killer Croc or is Killer Croc himself or is the the father of Killer Croc or the mother of Killer Croc and what have you. But I don't think it's going to be that simple. Uh, Innes is going to throw us a curveball because he always does. So I'm really enjoying this and and sort of the, the cherry on the top uh, is the relationship between uh, the interactions between Batman and Alfred. They just they crack me up every time. Uh, what did you think of this uh, issue, Rocky? The, the high points of this issue for me is just it's the ongoing characterization of Batman. It, it's this is I, I think this is in such a subtle way. Garth Ennis is giving us one of the most unique Batmans I've read in in in, in 20 years. I, I, I really do feel it's been that he's this Batman is is uh, he's uh, he's brutal. He's dark. He's darker. Yet he's self-aware. He's he's got a he's self-aware of his darkness, and he doesn't care. And he and, and and he argues with Alfred. Alfred is aware of his darkness, and points it out to him. And 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 he's you know Batman will point to his Bruce Wayne persona and say, well, you know, I have foundations that 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 help prevent children from turning into you know criminals. And and of course, but of course, if they turn into a criminal, look the hell out. I mean, and he just he is. He just doesn't care what happens to a criminal. If you cross that line, then you're part of the problem, and and uh, he he'll make sure that you won't he won't kill you. But he he's not gonna he's not gonna blink an eye if you get seriously hurt. Uh, yeah, the last line the last line of the issue when he tells the Joker like, "Damn, yeah." When he tells, <laughs> "How do you like him? my sense of humor?" Yeah, the Joker's like literally had the skin peeled off of his entire body. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's fantastic because because the Joker. I mean, he's pissed off at the Joker because, like he said, the, the Joker takes twenty three hostages, and Batman's pissed off because it's like, why are you wasting my time? He knows the Joker's yeah. just doing this to waste his time. The Joker knows that he's looking for this reptilian creature, and Batman is pissed off, and he and he's he calls him he calls him a painted, uh, painted uh, ex excrement or something calls him some I forget exactly what he called him but he's pissed off at the Joker and he's he's and when he's when he arrives on the scene and he and he texts Volkov and he says why didn't I hear about this and it, what's so funny is if you look at Volkov's uh phone on his text messages he doesn't he he refers to Batman as HWMNBN which I you can tell means he who will who he or who we, uh, who we know can't be named, <laughs> or he who cannot be named, I think is what it's supposed to stand for, because he can't let anybody know if, in case they 
confiscate the Joker confiscates his phone that he's actually texting. He gets a text from Batman, and Batman's wondering from Volkov, "Why the hell haven't I heard about this?" And of course, Volkov's too buddy scared of the Joker, uh, but he's also scared of the Batman. And then Batman tells him to shoot the two guys behind him in the legs so Batman can get in there and prevent a, a bloodshed for all the hostages. And oh man, this is so this is awesome. And then and then when he chases down the Joker, and then that reptilian creature gets involved, and the Joker starts talking smart to Batman, and then. There's a great scene at the end where Batman tells Joker, uh, Joker, I'm not in the room with you. <laughs> so he realizes that creature is, and then all of a sudden you hear, you know, you know, the lettering, you can see Joker screaming, you can hear Joker screaming in the background, and meanwhile Batman is kind of nonchalant about it and walks up to him, as you said at the end, and tells the Joker, what do you think of my sense of you? <laughs> Come on, like, this is, I mean, this, this is not... Uh, highest compliments to Garth Ennis because I this feels like a different kind of Batman to me than the one we're accustomed to reading in the mainstream DC universe, and that that's a high compliment because how many times, how many different versions of do we get of Batman in different stories and what have you? But this one actually feels genuinely fresh. I would love to have a series uh, more than just one one story of of this Batman in this in this Garth Ennis universe because hey man if we have the Snyder we got the Sean Gordon Sean Gordon Murphy we got the Murphy verse <laughs> why not you know I would love a Garth Ennis verse of this version of Batman I'm really enjoying this and and the art Liam Sharp's fantastic and yeah I highly recommend this and I, I encourage people to get it and I'll stop talking about it I don't want to you know there's a lot lots of other great moments in this particular issue that I'd encourage people to pick it up yeah uh when you talk about Batman's mission, right? Strike fear into the hearts of, of criminals, you know, they're superstitious and cowardly lot. This is a Batman that not only strikes fear into the criminals of Gotham, but, but even his allies, like even the, when his interactions with the police, you can tell they're a little standoffish. Like, yeah, this Batman doesn't take anybody's crap basically. So, uh, back to a story that has a much more classic Batman and Superman. Um, Batman Superman number 21 from writer Jean Luen Yang. Yvonne Reese is back on pencils. Danny Mickey handles the inks. Sabine Rich on colors. Seda Temofanti on letters. And th this is the, the last issue of Batman Superman. Uh, you know, we know that Jean Luen Yang, this is the story he was brought on to tell. And he p said he probably could have come up with some other ideas, but he's just too busy with other projects. And so DC, rather than finding uh, somebody else to take it over, has decided just to cancel it for now. But there is going to be um, one more kind of epilogue story, uh, which I imagine kind of plays into what we see at the end of the issue here. Um, we're going to get a little bit more of this archive of worlds in Batman Superman 2021 annual, which I think comes out next week. But uh, for now, this is the conclusion of the story. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of thought, I don't know, it, it, it sort of ended a little anticlimactic for me, but, uh, but what did you think Rocky? Well, uh, again, I, I thought, uh, this is beautiful art. I mean, it's, this is, this is really, the, the art here is just fantastic. I, you know, what, this is going to read great as a trade and I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, 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 I, I do feel this dragged on a little long, but at the same time, I mean, we are getting some great art here. We're, we're you know, we, in this issue, we, we continue with the demon Etrigan sort of, uh, and we're, we're dealing with that, that, you know, the, 
great art by I, with Ivan Reese with the, with the film strips and going into different universes, jumping from film strip to film strip, and and seeing how the, the various worlds are destroyed, and and it ending on an interesting cliffhanger that where where a parademon actually steals a film strip and takes it to Darkseid, and so Darkseid is aware of the archive of worlds now as well, and I can't I couldn't help but wonder at the end if maybe Darkseid now we know Darkseid is the of course the the lurking threat of the of the multiverse in DC Infinite Frontier that so it, it, it's sort of consistent with with that and it would make sense that Darkseid would know of the this archive of worlds that not only is there a multiverse and an omniverse but within the universe of the DC mainstream DC universe there is this archive of worlds which also gives it a, uh, an ability to uh, th- through Arterio who becomes observe uh observer io at the end he he becomes a they convert him from sort of an evil entity to a a more uh, benevolent one at the end of this series but the lurking threat of dark side at the end that's that's what's teasing that there that there's more that this this threat this archive of worlds is is something where we could get more more stories out of it's actually an interesting sort of take on things because instead of having a multiverse you you literally have an archive of worlds which is essentially the same thing but with just conceptualized differently so overall a very imaginative take this was great this is um uh, this is the demon etragon in this series just ultimately using weapons from one of the worlds where superman he enters superman's fortress of solitude uses weapons against uh the uh, batman and superman Meanwhile, Alana and uh, the the Zorro-like character end up sharing a moment of uh, romance, and so there's a little bit of uh, you know just just fun. I mean, this is just a fun series. I like I said, I can't say anything bad about this. I mean, and my criticism that it's dragged on a little bit too long. Well, quite frankly, if I, if you're getting this as a trade and you want to sit back and just release, you know, you know. Sip a, sip a beer or sip a pop and read a good comic book. This is going to be a fantastic uh, trade uh, to read, collection of stories. Beautiful art, consistent with its theme. It's, it's, easy, it's easy to read. It's fun to read, especially that first issue when you first get into it. You, you, can, you can read it backwards and forwards. Or you can, I mean, the way, the way that uh, Yang did it there. I mean, just, uh, just this is fun. So overall... A little bit decompressed uh, for my liking, but overall, I still have to say it's a, it's a it's a very it's very well put together, and I can't fault it. I can't fault the writer here or the or the art for putting for making a really good, enjoyable reading experience overall. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Like overall, you know, this is way above average. The Yvonne Reese art is is fantastic. Seeing characters like Alana and El Diablo. Um, Etrigan, you know, these aren't characters that we, we see a whole lot of. Seeing this different version of Superman, a much more Golden Age version, but yet in a way modern. Um, a, a Golden Age uh, Batman and Robin, you know, a very young Robin who, who still is learning the ropes and gets scared at one point in this series. Uh, you know, a very young Dick Grayson. That, that's all, it's all fantastic because it's, it's like a modern version of the Golden Age version of these characters, which is, is fantastic. Um, I did mention kind of the, the ending feeling just a bit anticlimactic. I mean, there is a kind of a, a point here where, where this version of, of, you know, this sort of modern golden age version of Batman and Robin and this modern golden age version of Superman sort of, 
realize that the, their way to win is to actually call out the sort of alpha versions of, of Batman and Superman, right? Destroy that crystal that Arturo had, had imprisoned the sort of the uh, Batman and Superman of, of earth prime or earth zero or, or whatever you want to call it, right? The main uh, earth of, of the DCU and, and, sort of as a metaphor for how powerful those versions that the sort of true truest versions of uh the world's finest heroes um they're they're bigger right they're giant in in relationship in size to these uh other versions and uh but it's still fun um you know and, and once those kind of truest versions are free then Arturo doesn't really have a chance um and so that's what i mean when it, it wasn't uh, you know, there wasn't a big twist. There wasn't a big surprise, but that doesn't mean it was a bad story at, at all. Um, it's just that once those guys are free, you, you know, it's kind of like writings on the wall, Arturo, you're done, man. Uh, you know, the real Superman and Batman are here and you don't, you don't have a shot. Uh, so, but again, I mean that, that double page spread when they break out, uh, when the, 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 uh, real sort of, you know, to, to put a label on it, the real Batman and Superman, when they break out and then they're attacking uh, Autour IO along with the, these, yeah, that page right there, um, along with the smaller versions of them, the golden age, modern golden age version. I mean, that's just, if that doesn't bring a smile to your face, yeah. you're not a comic fan. I mean, it's just fun. It's awesome. That's it's epic. Story, yeah. yeah, that's what the story's been all, all the whole time. It's just been fun. Um, and kudos to, you know, Gene Luen Yang and the entire art team for keeping this theme running. I mean, I got to think that Yvonne Reese was just tired of drawing the film strip borders. <laughs> Hopefully he's <laughs> using some sort of digital thing to kind of cut and paste those because my God. Um, but yeah, they just kept that theme running throughout. It was just really clever in terms of, you know, the, the real Superman uh, pulling apart the film strips, you know, we saw last issue the way um, the the world of tomorrow got sort of infected with uh, the world of, of this version of Etrigan was the films were spliced together. And now Superman's, you know, literally pulling them apart, pull, like pulling those two universes apart. It's just a cool, it's just a cool plot point. It's just a cool narrative. And, and yeah, I, I, I love the fact that we're going to get a little bit more, you know, there were a few like three strips uh, right at the end that, that sort of mention different things that are still mashed up. Uh, are we going to get more of Alana and, and, uh, and El Diablo? Like, are they, are they to be a, a couple? Because we see at the end, Alana sort of, you know, in that, that idea of the film strip melting and, and Alana going from her uh, film strip or her world to El Diablo's world. And then the idea of a bizarro two face just broke out of prison and, um, and they're calling Bruce Wayne, and so are we going to get another team up with this? Uh, these versions of of Superman and Batman and Robin, and then like Rocky alluded to in the epilogue, you know, the fact that this Parademon managed to steal a reel uh, from the Archive of Worlds and take it to Darkseid, and when Darkseid starts spooling it out, what we see is we see Billy Batson, we see Shazam or, or Captain Marvel, you know, whatever you like to call him, we see the Wizard Shazam. Um, and Darkseid saying how interesting, how useful. So what from this really just fun and epic and, and sort of instantly classic story that Gene Luen Yang and Yvonne Reese and Sabine Rich and everyone else has, has created, what can um, 
uh, Joshua Williamson, who's who's show running the Infinite Frontier uh, event, what can he pull from this and use? You know, because we know the multiverse, the, the multiverse of multiverses is really what the Infinite Frontier is all about. Instead of just one multiverse, we know there are many, there are multi multitude of multiverses now in the DC universe. You know, Scott Snyder used the analogy of um, kind of the idea of the DC multiverse as, as a fishbowl. What happens when you take that fishbowl and you pour it into the ocean? You know, now you've got a multiverse of multiverses. So I love the idea of, of one of those multiverses of multiverses being this idea that they're all film strips. They're all, uh, you know, movies or, or, you know, different versions of worlds that are on contained in a, in a metaphorical uh, film strip. And that's just a brilliant idea from Gene Luen Yang. So I'm glad we got this story. If, if I have any complaint, um, you know, I, I'm nitpicking on, on kind of not having a big, huge climax. Um, and I'll, I'll set that aside because I think the story has been a lot of fun. If I have any complaint, it's actually, I want another Gene Luen Yang Batman Superman story. I really do. I wish he could have stayed on the title longer. Um, because one of the things that uh, Yang is really good at is emotional stories. And not that we didn't get some emotion in the story, we did, but it, it certainly wasn't anything overt. I mean, this was more just an instantly classic uh, story that, that harkened back to the golden age with the versions of Superman, Batman, and Robin that we got, but also sort of Silver age in the idea of the worlds being film strips. I mean, that's a very Silver Age idea. Um, but... I know that Yang is capable of such emotional storytelling. So if we could have gotten something from him that really explored the emotional relationship between Batman and Superman, I, I think I would have really enjoyed that as well. Um, but not to take away any of my uh, enjoyment or uh, the success of what the whole creative team has done here. Uh, just selfishly, I'd like more. Uh, I'd like more Yang on this title. It's it's that simple. So. Uh, I think Gene, Gene's incredibly talented, and I'm sure whatever he's going to do next is is fantastic. Um, and that kind of brings me to another point. Yvonne Reese, you know, we, Rock and I both have praised his art throughout. He's one of DC's best talents. And now that this title is coming to an end, you know, I'm very curious to see what he's going to do next because that's going to be something really, really interesting. Because, uh, you know, he's one of those artists I'll pick up a book if he's drawing it just because he's drawing it. I mean, I read everything digitally that we get, but when Yvonne Reese is, is drawing something, I, I pick up the hard copies, whether I'm a fan of, like if he could do Midnighter, you know, who I'm not a fan of at all, but if he was doing it, could you imagine, right? Like Rocky, if, if that Midnighter, uh, that Becky Cloonan, uh, Michael Count, Conrad Midnighter story was drawn by Yvonne Reese, we'd probably be like, oh, it's so good. Well, I mean, traditionally, Midnighter has always been drawn by he's had a particular style. He's been drawn. He's been, he has a, he has a particular artistic style when people draw Midnighter and, and Michael Van Oming's art is, is a divergent style than how Midnighter is traditionally drawn. And so, you know, and again, it's no disrespect to Van Oming. It's just that he, it was, it was a very much an about face. And, but Ivan Reese, man, that would have been more, more traditional and just, you know, make, raising that to a level that I think would have been more appropriate for the, for that series. Frankly. Yeah. We probably, like I said, we probably would love it. So yeah, I'm very curious to see what uh, Yvonne Reese does next. All right. Up next checkmate. Number three, speaking of uh, series that maybe aren't hitting their stride. 
Uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis, Alex Maleev handles the art, Dave Stewart on colors, Josh Reed on letters. <sighs> Rocky, your thoughts. Oh, Number man. three of six, we're, half, we're halfway done. You know, it's funny because uh, I actually, there's, a, there's 15 titles that we're reviewing this week. And uh, I, I take notes on the majority of them. And this is one where I, I, I didn't because uh, I just never really had, there wasn't really much to, to say here. Although maybe there's some things of potential interest. I, I don't know. Does anybody care about the snowman's ticket? What's the snowman's ticket? Well, you don't you don't remember the snowman's ticket? Do you even do people even know who Mark Shaw is? That's Leviathan. <laughs> in any event, so what 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 happened in this issue? Well, uh, not a lot. I we still really don't know what the snowman's ticket is. Um, it Superman. I mean, Superman rescued Talia last issue. Tal, we jumped and forth between three different time periods. Talia attacked and killed a bunch of people at uh, Leviathan headquarters in, in Markovia. And uh, she was about to be, I, I think, killed by Leviathan. I don't think I know. Uh, and Superman rescues Talia. Superman has a confrontation with Leviathan here that, that really goes absolutely nowhere. Uh, where everyone... Everyone with Leviathan, whenever Leviathan has a conversation with anybody of note, whether it's Superman or Lois or anybody, he's always talking about, you know, you should join me because I, you know, I know more than you and I know what's right. And you're part of the old system. Come with me. Come with me. Uh, meanwhile, he's done. You know, they've he's I mean, everything he's done, he's got he's, it's been murderous, terrorist. He's taken over. He should be wanted by every government on the planet. None of this makes any it, any sense it, it's really hard to respect this guy in any event Ta superman gets rescues talia and then then what what we get is again more more dialogue um there, there's dialogue between director bones uh kate spencer the manhunter and steve trevor which these are interesting characters i mean we know director bones is I mean, Director Bones is actually trying to figure out the machinations of the multiverse right now. And seeing him in the pages of Checkmate, talk about a demotion. I mean, he shouldn't be here. This this series shouldn't exist in my mind because this 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 belittles all these characters, which are interesting. Uh, I, I just don't see the point of this. Uh, and they, um, uh, I'm I'm just frustrated. I'm just going to uh, I'm just gonna cut this all short that Leviathan speaks to L Lois and you know Leviathan basically tells Lois that I just wanted to see uh, I want you know I want to convince your husband to to uh, to come to my side he, he Lois points out to him that if you wanted to have a conversation with me why did you they snap up the entire lake house last issue and transport it and teleport it to Markovia, uh, where she, where she, like, she went to her father's cabin, and and she's trying to figure out the secret of the snowman's ticket. And um, in any event, something happens there. Uh, Leviathan has to has to cut his meeting with Lois short, and so he transports Lois away out of out of Markovia, and he transports her to the Hall of Justice, and. 
that's when Leviathan realizes he made a mistake because Lois figures out that if every time that she, they were they were transported away from Leviathan, they were transported at once. One time they transported to the Fortress of Solitude. Another time they transported to the Hall of Justice. So Lois sort of uh, figures out and Leviathan realizes the mistake he made with Lois. And Lois, uh, Lois figures out from that that what his his next target likely will be, and I'm not. And they're going to end up using the the Hall of Justice as bait. And look, I I really want to sound more intelligent and coherent when I do these reviews, but I I don't really understand the end game here because Bendis has has done a terrible job. I I don't know why Leviathan. What is why is Leviathan better than everyone else? What's his master plan? What's the snowman's ticket? Why should I care? And then this series, and then this issue ends with it with showing us a glimpse of Damien Rose, who we know is Lois Lane's brother, and he's got Lois Lane in his sights. Well, he's got his own sister in his sights, so something's going on there. And and it's revealed at the end that Talia's working with Leviathan all along, which. If this was a well-written story, that would be a pretty cool reveal because Talia attacked him. Talia has hated Leviathan from the beginning. Talia uh, Talia was angry at Leviathan because Leviathan took over Le- Leviathan. Like Mark Shaw took over Leviathan, which was Talia's organization. And now it's revealed that uh, apparently Talia's working with him. So that's kind of a big reveal. But it's so underwhelming how this has all come together and... I don't know what the the I don't even know what the puzzle pieces are in the past. To, why am I supposed to care? Because I don't even know the shape of the of the previous puzzle pieces that supposedly are supposed to fit together. And this is just a a horribly crafted, disorganized, disembobulated mess. And if I had another adjective or another synonym for confusing, I, I would I would use it. But anyways, man, I'm just uh, this is just a a significant miss for me. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say that Alex Maleev's art's grown on me a little bit, but you know, this is a miss, and I, I, I can't, I can't recommend this comic to anybody in good faith. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep going back to who asked, who asked for this? I mean, yeah. it, it feels like a natural offshoot of of what Bendis was doing with action comics, right? Like, part of the reason I, I disliked his action comics more than I disliked his Superman run was at least his Superman comic uh was it felt super heroic even if i didn't necessarily agree with what he's doing aging of john ken and and the you know relationship between clark and lois wasn't what it should have been but he in action comics it was like he was trying to do a crime noir version of superman and i just think that those two genres you know remember superman as a character he started the superhero genre he was the first Regardless of how DC's timeline has changed over the years and blah, 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 whatever. I'm talking about in the real world, publishing-wise, Superman was the first superhero. That genre, the genre of superheroes, does just fundamentally doesn't work with crime noir. You know, this whole idea of the invisible mafia operating under Superman's nose for years and him not realizing it? No, man, that just doesn't work for me. And so, again, I, I mean, I guess I thought Bendis thought, hey, it, it'll be fun. No one's ever done it before. Let's let's kind of merge crime noir with Superman. 
I don't think it works. For me personally, it doesn't work. Now, your mileage may vary, and maybe you're loving, maybe you loved what Bendis did in Action Comics, and maybe as an offshoot, you're loving this. Because I can see that if that had worked, why this would work also. And even though Mark Shaw is not exactly a, a household name when it comes to DC characters, I think he was a good character, and I think he was an underutilized character. But Bendis has sort of taken him off the table, and and it just none of the characterization for for Mark Shaw here feels authentic or feels like a natural evolution of the behavior we've seen from him before. So. Like, I get what Bendis is trying to do. He's trying to show that, hey, Mark Shaw might be right. Like, look at things from his point of view. You know, they're trying to make the world a better place through force. The problem is that idea is so old and tired, it doesn't even live in the gray area anymore, right? Like, the whole idea of of villains who are super interesting is because you can see their point of view, and even though they are the bad guys, you kind of can empathize with them, and, and you can understand their point of view. And I think in the last 20 years, the the villain in comics who epitomizes that more than anybody is Toyo Harada um, when Valiant relaunched in 2012, written by Joshua Dysart. And you can go back and listen to any number of the podcasts where we've had Joshua Dysart come on the comic source and talk about that. And we could talk about it for hours. And, and the fact that you can talk about Toyo Harada and his motivations and is he the bad guy? Is he the main... I mean, that's... The question of it, who is the main character of the Harbinger series? Is it the Harbinger kids? Is it Peter Stanchek? Is it Toyo Harada himself? We've had hours long as discussions, both on the podcast and, and me sitting down drink having some drinks with Josh and other Valiant fans, like hours of discussion. And there is no one right answer because it all lives in the gray area. And that's what's so interesting. Yeah. And that, again, is the perfect type of villain when you talk about living in this gray area. But Bendis is going backwards. Bendis is, is taking a page from history and saying, hey, um, Mark Shaw is basically saying, I know best through no kind of philosophy or train of thought you can follow. It's only that he has the power to do this. Might makes right. We're going to take over all the intelligence services of the DC universe and all their secret technology, and we're going to make the world a better place. That's not interesting anymore. That's World War II stuff. You know, it didn't work then, and we all knew it didn't work then, and it led to the Holocaust and millions of people being killed. And why is this interesting in 2021? It's not groundbreaking. It's not interesting. It's old. It's tired. And on top of that, Bendis keeps giving us, you know, like, you just read, just read the issue. This happened today. This happened now. This happened today. This, like, what? This happened weeks ago. Like, He's not even telling a linear story. Yeah. I, I guess because and, if he and, told, and it's all conversations, like it's just conversations. There's no action. It's like he he's 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 telling us he's showing the conversations, not the action. Like he's showing us useless scenes. Like and and we're just being told all the time. We're never we're not really being shown. And that's the it's the cardinal sin of of comic book storytelling. Yeah. I mean, good grief! I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and, and here's the thing. Like, if I sat down with, with Brian and he told me the story, hey, here's the, this idea that I have. Like, go all the way back to the beginning. Like, forget about Checkmate. Forget about uh, uh, the Leviathan. Forget about – like, go back to the begin. Go back to the beginning of when you first conceived this idea and, 
and explain it to me, Brian, explain it to me. I bet you I would be engrossed. I bet you I'd be enthralled because I think the, the seeds of a good idea are there, but I think it's falling apart in the execution. And I think part of it is just where the DC universe is right now, where we are in the, in the world right now, in, in as much as this whole idea of might makes right, isn't interesting or, or it's not something we need to explore anymore. It's an old idea that that's day is long past. So I think there is the seed of something interesting there. And when I read this book, it, it feels like an opportunity missed more than anything. And, and maybe some of that goes to what Rocky just said about it. it's like all these guys standing around talking about these events that sound cool, show us the events that are cool instead of just talking about the stuff that's happened. Um, and then the fact that you're giving us these characters who, again, are interesting but you're giving us like the most boring version of, of, you know, Kate Spencer and, and green arrow. And I've never seen Damien less action oriented than in this series, you know, same with director bones, like the, the most interesting thing that one, the thing that I'm most invested in out of anything is this idea of us maybe finding out who the real um, Mr. King is. And I, or this mysterious Mr. King, as they refer to him. I have a feeling he's a, he's a Mark Shaw from a different multiverse. Yeah. I, uh, the, this, yeah. the sad part is I don't even care. It's funny, the very last panel, uh, you know, the last two panels, Toy Man says to him, maybe it's time to reveal who you really are. And he says, yeah, I was really hoping to avoid that. And yep. that to me, just it, that's a perfect embodiment of my frustration with this series. I mean, what is this, the third series on Leviathan slash Checkmate slash whatever, who cares? And and and, and we, th th that epitomizes it. Like, he, Bendis just doesn't want to tell us anything useful. He, I, I don't know why I'm supposed to care. This guy is a yeah. joke. The, the Leviathan's a joke. Checkmate's, he's made Checkmate a joke. I mean, uh, Toy Man's become a, you know, former pedophile. Toy Man's become a good guy, you know, because Superman revealed his secret identity. And while some people who are, you know, gay come out to their parents inspired by Superman, Toy Man stops being a bad guy and joins Checkmate. I mean, when everything that's gone wrong to the DC Universe has been, has been related to Bendis. And it's like he's the guy, he's the bull who decided to visit the China shop wrecked it and now he's leaving and uh you know his contract's up and i'm 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 just i'm i'm just i just want this to be over i just want this to be over <laughs> yeah well he still has justice league uh and, and i did i did see on social media this week people were speculating about whether or not that bendis deal had more to do with didio getting fired than than we first believed so again i mean i have nothing personal against brian i mean he when i met him his love of comics is infectious but yeah, I just sort of feel like his style of storytelling just didn't necessarily suit the DC, the DC universe. But I, I will give him this: as much as I didn't like the characterization that he gave us in the Superman titles of Clark and Lois's relationship, like that's the thing that I even more than um, than him aging up John, like it, the way he depicted Clark and Lois's relationship is the thing I hated the most. Yeah. Um, he's done a good job of making Lois kind of the most capable and the character of the most agency in this checkmate book so if i have a positive it's that he's making lois is kind of a badass in this 
title, and I do I do enjoy that. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you that. I'll grant you that. And I know I, I didn't mean to go on too much of a rant there, but I I kind of did. Every now and then I gotta I gotta I gotta I gotta let it out. It's like yeah, a little no top. Problem. I gotta like blow my top. You know, I mean, look, I I, I love Bendis's Batman universe. I I loved that. That's his best DC work. I th- I thought it that was a lot of fun. That his Batman universe. Well, the was... Batman. We we don't know who's following Tynan yet. Maybe it'll be Mendes. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Up next is Harley Quinn number six. It's from writer Stephanie Phillips. Laura Braga handles the art. Arif Prianto on colors and world design on letters. This is a big, uh, big shift. Um, and I, I'm sure it's just Riley Rosimo, the normal series artist, taking a, a month off to kind of catch his breath. Um, but it, it just felt so different to me with the Laura Braga line work. Um, and, and this issue is all about Catwoman and Harley's relationship. And I, I really loved the interaction. And I felt like and, – and maybe I just wasn't getting it. Maybe the Rosmo art was distracting me. Maybe I wasn't catching on to the little subtle – uh, quirks that uh, Stephanie Phillips was throwing into the language here or there. Uh, little things that, that Harley said that are just kind of funny and self-deprecating and and just, uh, I don't know. I just think she's such a perfect choice to write Harley. Maybe the best choice to write Harley since Jimmy, Jimmy and Amanda. Um, but, but I even think I like Stephanie Phillips' voice for Harley even more. But, you know, you got to give props to Jimmy and Amanda because they're the ones that sort of took Harley out of Gotham and, and, you know, gave her her own agency and, and really elevated her to the fourth pillar of the, the DCU. And the argument could be made. She's more popular than Wonder Woman and even more popular than Superman, maybe. So maybe she's the second pillar, but um, it just felt so different with, with, uh, with Laura Braga on art. Um, other than that, it's, but it, at the end of the day, it's still a Harley Quinn story. Uh, and I'm not the biggest Harley Quinn fan. So I thought this was just, you know, okay. Um, if you look at the fear state checklist, which is in the back of all the DC books this week, um, this is actually listed as, uh, as part of that story. And it certainly is a, a bit of a lead in, although it doesn't have any kind of, you know, fear state, uh, trade dress or anything on it. Uh, in fact, last week's I am Batman zero and, or two weeks ago, I am Batman zero. And then Catwoman 34 from last week are also listed on the checklist. Um, and then Batman Fear State Alpha comes out next week. And to me, that's sort of like the, the real beginning of the Fear State storyline. So maybe we can think of I Am Batman Zero, Catwoman 34, and Harley Quinn number six as sort of uh, sort of preludes. Um, so I thought this was fine. Um, I, I did read it, obviously, even though I keep saying I'm going to stop reading Harley Quinn. But I'm just such a fan of Stephanie Phillips. And I'm glad I did because, like I said, I did enjoy the Laura Braga art. Um but I'm curious, Rocky, your your thoughts, because the Riley Rosmo art has been growing on you, yeah. um, and, and I know you're a big Harley Quinn fan. So, what were your thoughts on uh, this issue? Uh, I, I enjoyed this. I continue to enjoy this. I, I love this series, and I actually, like, yeah, you know, the Riley Rosmo art ha- it has indeed grown on me. And I just want to say that uh, one of the one of the, the things that I think might surprise people to hear is that if you look at the sales, Harley Quinn. Stephanie Phillips, Harley Quinn, with Riley Rosmo art, is outselling a lot of DC titles. It's at forty-five thousand. You look at the June sales chart. I think it surprises a lot of people that uh, Harley Quinn is 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 actually selling. Uh, I think uh, higher than I would have thought, given you know 
you know, just anecdotally, I I hear all this negativity about Riley Rosemo's art, but no, this this series is selling. This 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 comic is selling, and Stephanie Phillips, uh, you know, look, I mean, she's not only making a name for herself because I I think I've been enjoying Harley Quinn, and it appears many other people have too that perhaps aren't as uh, vocal uh, as I get to be when I do these reviews with you, Jay. So that was really good for me. Uh, uh, that that pleased me to hear, and I'm sure Stephanie Phillips is happy, and I'm sure DC Comics is happy as well. Uh, this is indeed linked to Fear State, this story, and it's it's well done. I mean, Harley is tracking the shipment of drugs uh, coming into uh, Hugo Strange's facility. And, of course, Hugo Strange is working with uh, Scarecrow, who is the, the – basically, he's the big head honcho of, of Fear State. And so, uh, plot-wise, it, it is all linked. And then we've got the – uh, we've got the uh, keepsake, this new, this new bad guy, Harley Quinn's bad guy, and he seems to be—he's almost like a, a B or a C level type level villain. He doesn't get any respect from Scarecrow at all, and he even seems to be one step below Hugo Strange himself. So, keepsake doesn't seem to me to be as high profile as he can. Scarecrow almost sort of doesn't treat well. Scarecrow treats keepsake with a, a great deal of uh, a sort of uh, almost contempt and disrespect. And uh, Stephanie Phillips does a good job here of the rapport between uh, Selena and uh, Harley. And when I say rapport, I don't they, they've got look, they're they're two of the three uh, Gotham City sirens. And the only one it's just unfortunate that Poison Ivy, of course, is taken off the playing field right now because her, you know, because she's she was rescued by Selena in the pages of Catwoman, because for those who may not uh, re- remember, uh uh, I be- it was Simon Saint uh, Industries, and the, there were, and, and I believe Scarecrow as well was, was utilizing Poison Ivy and using her body chemistry to help create some of the drugs that were being uh, that were uh, being made and being uh, sold to the citizens of Gotham. But in any event, this was a this was a great series. This was a, a great series. Pardon me. This is a good issue. It's a fun issue, and. Quite frankly, I would be really curious to know if, because, uh, Jace, you said something that I think is very interesting. You said that you, you had a better appreciation or you implied you had a better appreciation of the voice that Stephanie Phillips gives Harley because the art was different. I saw, you know, I, I didn't mind Riley Rosmo's art. Uh, and I, I enjoy this art here too, uh, quite frankly. And I enjoyed this issue equally to what came before. I for consistently, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, I, look, man, I, Riley Rosmo's art's grown on me, and I actually prefer Riley Rosmo's covers to this Harley series because consistently, I, I I just I like the covers, I like the story. Uh, this is well done. Uh, Laura, Laura Braga here, she does some really great scenes. The level of her detail and the backgrounds, she's actually she is. Uh, she is better at backgrounds, I think, than Riley Rosmo. And uh, there's there's a lot of detail here. Clear, crisp lines. I mean, just really well, just well-crafted, well, well-structured panels. I mean, it, it reads, it flows well. Good action. Uh, yeah. A lot of fun. Uh, and I would... Uh, I'm I'm curious to know. I, I like at the end here where she hints, uh, where Harley does hint about uh, Poison Ivy. And at some point, we're going to be getting... Uh, at some point, these two are going to be looking for Poison Ivy. Uh, Harley theoretically hasn't made that a full-time her priority yet. And when she does, that reunion between Harley and, and Poison Ivy is is definitely something that is, 
I think that uh, Stephanie Phillips has is uh, strongly hinted she's going to be working toward. But overall, I thought this was this was um, this was this was okay. And I'm looking forward to Fear State heating up, as it says at the end of this issue. And I thought just one minor criticism. I thought Harley's Harley Harley's uh, uh, compliments of Selena I thought were maybe a little bit exaggerated. I never saw Harley as being that as holding Selena in that high regard as she tends to hold Selena in this issue. But, uh, uh, but you know, since, since Selena is now with Batman and, and, you know, and Harley now wants to get closer into the Bat family, maybe that's, maybe that's why, but yeah. Yeah. I think that in, basically I expect in, in fear state Harley to really be focused on poison Ivy because, uh, I did mention there's some some back matter in all the DC books this week about Fear State. And specifically, they say, in Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and Batman's Secret Files, The Gardener, Poison Ivy's key role in Fear State will come into focus. As revealed back in Batman 109, she's not quite herself, growing a thick jungle underneath Gotham that's putting the entire city in imminent peril. But Harley's determined to restore Ivy's memory and save the day. So, yeah, I, I would expect by the end of, of Fear State uh, to the delight of a lot of Harley and, and Poison Ivy fans that uh, Harley and, and Pamela Isley will be an item once again with, uh, with Poison Ivy sort of uh, returned to normal. Cause she's sort of been off the table ever since Tom King's um, Batman run when she sort of took over the planet and then ended up at sanctuary uh, and then got killed and was regrown as a, as a plant um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. she hasn't quite, yeah, t- hasn't been herself at all. So, um, this will be sort of a return to norm normalcy for her. I would, I would expect, yeah. uh, all right. Up next is a book that we mentioned has been, uh, really a, a pleasant surprise and very, very good. It's, uh, Mr. Miracle, the source of freedom. Number four by writer, Brandon Easton. Fico Osio is the artist. Rico Renzi is the colorist and Rob Lee handles the letters. This is almost a, a bit of an interlude or a, uh, an issue that lets us sort of catch up. Um, this version of, of Mr. Miracle, the Shiloh Norman version, has been uh, sort of put through the ringer, both in terms of social media and uh, publicly, as well as his fight with Never Free, this supposed daughter of, of Scott Free and Barta uh, from an alternate future. Um, but this issue is really a chance for him to sort of catch his breath and, and learn a lot about his own origins that he didn't know before, uh, as, as Oberon sort of fills him in on things. And it's, yeah, it felt very different than a lot of the previous issues, but sort of in a good way. Um, but I'll talk a little bit more about my thoughts about it, but, uh, let's hear what you have to say first, Rocky. Well, first, uh, I, I strongly recommend if, if nobody has read Mr. Miracle yet, uh, you could actually pick up this issue. This is actually a fairly good... This is the origin of Shiloh Norman, and it explains the origin of Th- Thaddeus Brown. Gives a, the amount of... The, this is... There's a lot of exposition in this issue, but it's very good. It's It, it gives you a lot of information because one of the... One, so many questions we have about Shiloh Norman. One of the ones in particular that we had, Chase, in earlier issues, we discovered that that Shiloh Norman doesn't doesn't remember he does he's not connected to New Genesis he doesn't remember he doesn't know Scott Free he seems this seems to be a Mr. Miracle that 
he doesn't, you know, he's aware of Thaddeus Brown, but that's pretty much it. And so it was, we were curious to know what he actually does know, particularly since we had this never freedom, this other sort of, this other character, the, the, the daughter of Scott Free and Big Barda from another universe impinging on this one. And so, so much happens here. And last issue, never freedom, handily defeated Shiloh Norman and essentially left him defeated. And this issue opens up right away with Oberon rescuing Shiloh Norman. And by uh, Oberon is actually in Thaddeus Brown's uh, sort of old home. And he built out of Thaddeus Brown's old equipment. Oberon built uh, sort of a makeshift mother box and managed to boombox, I guess, mother box rescue uh, Shiloh. It, to Thaddeus's home and Oberon explains to him that he, he knew all three Mr. Miracles and, and it's, you mean three Mr. Miracles? Well, we readers know that there's Scott free, there's Thaddeus Brown. And who's the third? Well, if the, if it's if the third Mr. Miracle, I'm assuming it's uh Shiloh Norman, but is there another one? Not sure. But the, the history we get here is uh, this is, I, I really, really love this. I really, really love this. Unfortunately, I do think that there's a number of commentators out there that might might not enjoy some of this history because it uh, this gets into this is about uh, this is this delves into the history of the black culture in Metropolis, suicide suicide slum in Metropolis used to be called Hobbs Bay and it was an African-American community. And that's where Shiloh Norman essentially sort of grew up. And Thaddeus, Thaddeus Brown in the 1920s and 30s, that's where he grew up as well. And we get into his origin where he comes across this mother box and he utilizes the mother box uh, to become famous, to become popular. And and he marches uh, with uh, other uh, other African Americans in the nineteen, I believe it's the nineteen forties, and and he he encounters a lot of racial resentment and anger. But they he utilizes his his fortune that he gains from being an entertainer uh, entertainer as an escape artist to s- sort of help the help the community and to to create infrastructure and create a, a, a more of a vibrant middle class for Hobbs Bay in in the early days of, in the 1940s metropolis uh, and he ends up with a beautiful wife named Darla and they have a daughter named Rose and Rose ends up marrying a man by the name of Solomon and Solomon Norman and they have a son named of course that's Shiloh Norman Shiloh Shiloh barely remembers his parents and it's, it's discovered here. And what's revealed here is that it was, it was actually a young Shiloh Norman that, that unfortunately Thaddeus Brown, his grandfather, Thaddeus Brown is revealed to be the grandfather of Shiloh Norm. Thaddeus Brown left his mother box out and young Shiloh touched it. And unfortunately it sent his parents, Darla and Solomon, they're lost somewhere in the multiverse. And that's interesting. So we know maybe in some future issue that, they might be found. I, I think that that's interesting. I don't think they're killed, and but it, it's it's fascinating that we're we're getting that backstory and and Thaddeus and it's the loss of his wife. Thaddeus's wife died, and then when he loses his daughter because of his own carelessness and leaving his mother box around that his that the, his grandson Shiloh played with, and so he ends up losing his daughter and his son-in-law. 
Thaddeus becomes an alcoholic and he loses his, he sort of loses his fortune and he, he, he saw, and, but he, and he gives Shiloh, instead of raising Shiloh as his grandfather, he gives Shiloh into foster care and, and it's such, it's a really good story. And Shiloh is raised by a foster family and he's always thought of Thaddeus as a mentor, but he now realizes that mentor that that Thaddeus is more than just his mentor. Thaddeus was also his grandfather. And Oberon says to him, "Well, look, why do you think he? You know, you're obviously more than just a kid to him. You're you're, you're his grandson." And and uh, it's what this even gets very very philosophical, and it, and it gets self help here. So there's politics in here. There's there's African American life in Metropolis and in what is now Suicide Slum, but used to be Hobbs Bay, uh, and and Thaddeus Brown because Thaddeus became an alcoholic and because Thaddeus Thaddeus had so much guilt because his of his perceived failure of of being unable to save his wife Dara who died of cancer of being of his carelessness where losing losing his his daughter and son in law to the multiverse because of the leaving the the mother box out. That guilt prevented Thaddeus Brown from being able to forgive himself and access the full power of the mother box. Because as Oberon explains to Shiloh, the only way that you can really access the true power of the mother box is to uh, embrace, you know, uh, you know, uh, let let go of bigotry, embrace the truth. It gets it gets kind of deep here. You got to forgive yourself and. Ultimately, I mean, it really gets into the weeds here of self-help. It's almost like reading a self-help book. And I think that might turn some people off. If they, You got to have the patience to read this issue. There's a lot in here, man. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, of, of character introspection going on. Shiloh himself talks about his, his feelings of resentment and being judged by others growing up. He really lets loose. This is let's loose, let's loose psychologically here. He, he, he goes through an emotional transformation and uh, I, it worked for me. And I, and it's when, it's when Shiloh sort of lets, lets go and sort of forgives himself that he can, when he fully embraces the full power of, of the mother box only to be told by Oberon that well that's good now that you're now that you've you've got access to this ultimate power you got to go to new genesis because that's where never freedom is going and the final panel shows never freedom confronting Orion who is the uh Orion of course being the son of dark side uh and the step well I guess the adopted son of high father of new genesis so man so much in this issue so much to unpack so much to potentially talk about my question to you, Jace, is do you think it was a little bit much, too much crammed into one issue, or did, did you enjoy this as much as I did? No, I really did enjoy it. Um, like you said, though, I just wonder, because it was such a de departure, it feels very much like an interlude. Like, um, interesting that Brandon Thomas chose to, or Brandon Easton, rather, chose to to put this in the middle, right? Um, this is, is issue four of six. So we're closer to the end than the beginning. And, and like you said, this really could have been read first. Um, also, I, I thought interesting. I mean, here's care. Even though I've, I've talked before and I mentioned previously in this podcast that for me, Scott free is, is my Mr. Miracle. And I've never been that interested in Shiloh Norman. Uh, obviously uh, what the creative team has done here 
is is really working for me because uh, I, I'm now just as interested in, in the Shiloh Norman version of Mr. Miracle than I am in the Scott Free version. Um, and, and that's never been the case before. Uh, but to my knowledge, it's Thaddeus Brown was never previously related or it was never revealed that he was related to uh, to Shiloh Norman. So so the fact that DC is letting this happen, uh, I think, is really interesting. And I think it it's making Mr. Miracle feel more like a legacy character, which for me, that's one of the things. And for a lot of DC fans, that's one of the things that's the best and works the the most and, and allows people to be invested in the DC universe. It's a good more. idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. Um, uh, but yeah, I can see why other people would be like, well, you know, why should I care? And, and this is just, you know, um, whatever to token diversity and, and what have you. But no, I, I think that this works. I think this idea is the fact that there have been multiple Mr. Miracles over time, you know, we've already known that starting with Thaddeus Brown, who first came up with the idea and then passing it on to his grandson and, and training Scott free when he had the opportunity um, after his grandson was, uh, you know, put in foster care. I think that all that makes sense. And I think the, this idea of Mr. Miracle as a, a legacy character, I think that has a lot of potential to really expand the character and, and have it feel, I mean, I, I wouldn't want a hundred Mr. Miracles out there. This isn't the green lantern core uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it, but it makes sense what's done here. And what I'm really curious about is to see what happens now in these next two issues and, and the idea of Mr. Miracle as a legacy character. Well, if never free is Scott free's daughter, then shouldn't, I mean, to her point, you know, isn't she the rightful heir? That's been what she's been fighting uh, Shiloh Norman about, right? Like, no, you shouldn't have the name. That's my legacy. So I'm curious how that all gets wrapped up. Um, one of the things I will say about this issue, so the, the flashback scene is really interesting how they chose to color it where, where it looks kind of like the dot type uh, newsprint coloring from back in the day, uh, which was interesting. But I felt like the art here – I, I had to go back and look once I got a couple pages in to see if it was a different artist um, because I felt like the art wasn't quite as clean as, uh, as Fico Osio has, has given us previously. So I don't know if he was just rushed for this issue um, or, or what. And it's not to say the art's bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I just didn't feel like it was up quite up to his usual uh, work, but uh, it, it's still good. And I, I feel like the color work has been consistently great throughout the work by Rico Renzi um, is is fantastic, and it's and it's little details um, that really work for me. I don't know; yeah. you may not have noticed, Rocky, but in the first couple of pages, um, when Shiloh Norman, you know, has been kind of pulled out of the uh, sort of pickle he was in with uh, with Never Free and and being trapped on the island and not having access to his uh, all his technology. And uh, Oberon sort of rescued him, and he's he's laying on this table. If you notice, anytime they show the soles of his feet or the palms of his hands, how it's lighter in color, yeah. like African Americans typically uh, are on the soles of their feet and the palms of their hands, uh, yeah. like that that's great. Like I, I noticed that because um, that's that's accurate. That's uh, you know realistic yeah. coloring. So hats off to Rico Renzi for uh, for doing a great job and, and keeping yeah. that consist consistency. Because like I said, the art and maybe it was just a fact that they did want the the flashback scene to look differently 
Yeah. That, well, the flashback um, scenes, what I love about them is that it actually feels like an off-white colored comic book page. Yep. Like that's yeah. what I love about it. It's like like if you picked up a comic book in the nineteen, if I still owned a comic, if I look at a comic that I have from the sixties or seventies and it's got off white pages, it's gonna look like these pages, and it really yeah. it really contributes to the feel of the narrative and it really enhances it. You know, I mean, the only thing that's missing in on my digital screen right now is that smell of that comic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, but I do feel like the the um, pages where it's in the present time. I don't know. It just didn't feel as clean as what we normally get from Fika Osio. But maybe that was, like I said, a product of him being a little bit rushed. Or maybe the fact that he was using a little bit of a different style for the flashback pages bled over into the pages of uh, the current time. But it's it's a small nit, nitpick. The art's still fantastic. Um, but yeah, this isn't necessarily as much of an action-packed issue because the series has been pretty action-packed so far. Uh, but I still really enjoyed this, and especially that main cover where the, uh, it's all in black and white, except for Oberon and Mr. Miracle and himself, um, which sort of is uh, a hint to what we get inside, right? That we get some story that's told in the modern times, but the majority of the issue is, is flashback. Um, just a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. It's absolutely fantastic. So, yeah. uh, All right. Up next, we have Wonder Girl number three. Uh, this one's written and drawn by Joel Jones. The colors are by, uh, let me get to the credits. I think they're by Jordi Belair. Uh, yes, they're by Jordi Belair, Clayton Cowles on letters. Uh, Adriano Mello also helps out with the line work. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what, what to say about, about Wonder Girl. Uh, it's the first issue I felt was such an improvement on the Wonder Girl issues we got in Future State, which I really didn't enjoy. But I felt like the second issue was a step back, and I feel like this is another step back. I, I'm just – I don't see sort of a consistent, like, story or plot thread. I, I don't know what's going on. And I, it's, not, it's not even necessarily that it's confusing, but I just feel like we're not being given information we need to get. There's just – it's not that we're getting a bunch of stuff and it doesn't make sense. We're just not getting, like – like necessary information. I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Um, Eros shows up in this one. Why? Okay, there was a plane crash. Uh, okay, I, I know the plane was going down at the end of the last issue, um, and now apparently it crashed. Where's the only people we see come out of the plane crash are, are Jow and, and Yara Floor. Yeah. Did anyone else die? Do they care? Do they go try to help anybody else out from this plane full of people? Like, I just... I don't know. This is just not working for me. Um, and even even the line work from Joel Jones, uh, I, I've seen her do so much better. This art feels so static, and the line weights are so heavy, and, and it feels so heavy-handed, and it's not what I'm used to from Joel Jones. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to, to think of this, but um, this is – Again, not a, a book that's making me want to read more. I, I talked last uh, issue about how jo, uh, Yara Floor's uh, characterization on the plane made her really unlikable. Um, there's nothing overt that's unlikable about her here, but there's also nothing to, to kind of draw me in and make me care about her as a character. So, uh, yeah, this is it, it's going to be really difficult for me to sort of summon the motivation to read issue four. This is just missing me, and and again, it's probably just me, um, but I I did not enjoy this issue at all. So uh, yeah. I don't know what were your thoughts. What were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, uh, first of all, I 
I I actually thought at one point, um, uh, th- didn't Adriana Mello do some of this art? I I thought some of this looks like Adriana. Yeah, yeah, Mello. yeah. I I think I mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I I thought it's really sloppy. I I I don't. It's Adriana Mello's art. I think is 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 very dis disappointing. I I don't like how they drew Artemis on here either. Artistically, I just. This narratively, this is really messy, and this is—I'm very disappointed myself with this. And just, just we—I should just back up a bit here. Like, basically, what's happened? Just to—I mean, we know that the plane has crashed. We 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 got three tribes of Amazons looking to capture Yara Floor, and all all these because Yara Floor apparently is is a very special. She's special. She's come into. She's was supposedly there's some reason for some reason. All the tribes of the Amazons all wanted to keep it a secret, or they didn't want Yara to come into her own and access this power of. And now she has. In previous issues, there was this sea creature that gave her her, her Bella or Bella her fancy little magic lasso, whatever they call it there. And and now she's, you know, this she was attacked. the The plane crashed because on the plane, for some stupid reason. I.e. bad writing. I hate to say it. Uh, an Amazon decided to attack her on an airplane. <laughs> I mean, so the airplane crashes, and like you said, apparently they're the only ones on who get off the plane. Eros then shows up out of nowhere, accidentally pricks himself with the arrow. So he, and then he, the first person he sees is Yara. So Eros, the god of love, uh, is in love with Yara, and then he shoots. Ends up in this issue, ends up shooting Yara with the arrows. And so Yara feels, I guess, arguably kind of love for him, but she she also kisses her boyfriend or Jao or Jao. What's his name? Jao. Yeah, Jao. I think that's Jow. how you say it. Yeah, but even that, I mean, Jao's a creepy. He's a he's a creepy boyfriend. I mean, he, he in what 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 kind of a guy? I mean, how many guys that you know? She met she meets him in Brazil, and he then he falls around like a like a stage five clinger. And she's not worried about it. I mean, it's just, it just, she's just creepy. And and he's gonna hop on a plane. And I mean, a guy you just met's gonna hop on a plane to fly you back because she was attacked and because of her experience in Brazil. The whole thing just seems off. And then these, I, yeah, Joelle Jones is the 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 whole Artemis and Wonder Girl here, Cassie Sandsmark, Artemis and and Cassie, their dialogue and they meet. Is, is atrocious and they meet up with this this other Amazon from another tribe and it's totally totally pointless I mean they're they're fighting again and now they you know they fought last issue now they're fighting again and they want to and they know they're supposed to yoke for Yara I mean why this is useless dialogue like this we, we learn nothing of substance this is just pointless dialogue uh, I think it's meant to be I think funny and jovi- jovial and and it's it's meant to be I don't know I I, I it it just doesn't work. Uh, I agree with you artistically. This I this is kind of a turnoff as as well. It's just this isn't working for me, and I I don't understand. You know, Eros at the end there ends up. You know, she gets shot in in the air. She gets shot, and she feels a little funny. And then she sees the fairy creature that 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 we saw in Future State. And I forget the fairy creature's name. And this just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Eros ends up 
pulling uh, pulling Yara with him, and ultimately he ends up with uh, at uh, Hera, the god the goddess Hera, who is uh, Zeus's wife. Who, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like th- th- this entire issue was was uh it felt it was a mess and i hate to say that and you know honestly i mean joelle jones her catwoman run started off okay and it quickly ballooned into a a disorganized decompressed mess messy narrative as well this is actually worse than anything she's done did on catwoman this particular issue i really hope this improves this doesn't mean to be appear to be going anywhere at least at the end here yara finally is 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 in front of the goddess hera and we we were led to believe early on that the goddess hera wanted her dead so it's interesting what what is what is hera's agenda here why are the amazons looking for her that's the big question but this issue was just so badly put together that i'm actually wondering i actually forgot i mean the interest that i had in the first few issues it's quickly dissipating here because of these terribly unnecessary scenes. There are way too many characters here. Joelle Jones does not know how to handle all these moving parts very well. She should have, she should have just maybe had one tribe of Amazons look for her instead of having three. Cause this is really, really messy. And I got to tell you, this is about wonder girl. We are, to throw in Artemis and then the other Wonder Girl, Cassie Sandsmark, and then the third tribe of Amazons. Uh, not to mention we're going to have Queen Nubia. We got the goddess Hera. There's just too many parts here. And and I fear that Joelle Jones, I mean, she's, I love her art. And I loved her Lady Killer. I, I loved her Lady Killer. But with, with Lady Killer, she was dealing with one character and generally not a lot, you know, and she could just focus on a good cohesive narrative with one character. That was just a lot of fun. This story, I think, has so many moving parts, and I fear that Joelle Jones, I really hope that she can pull this narrative together. I mean, this is only one issue, and, you know, I think the art was sloppy, and, you know, and I'll, I'll give, you know, I'll give this issue a pass, but you, we could literally skip this issue. All you need is the last page on this issue. They get out of the plane, she gets kidnapped by Eros, and now, uh, now she's in front of Hera. That's all that really happened here. The rest we could have just literally just, we could have just, forgotten about because we learned absolutely nothing the scene between artemis and cassie sounds a complete waste of time because they had already met in the previous issues we didn't need to hear it we didn't need we didn't need anything from them uh, astonishing absolutely astonishing but i um yeah it's a miss for me <laughs> yeah it's it's unfortunate there are a few moments here or there that are are, are good and we, and we know Joel Jones is talented, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I felt like maybe it was just me because I, I haven't been a fan of the Yara Floor character. But, yeah, bit of a mess. Uh, all right. On to the last book uh, we're going to talk about in, in part one because we are splitting this up into two parts because uh, there are so many books this week. But it's Superman number 78, number one of six from writer Robert Venditti. We have uh, art from Wilfredo Torres. Colors are by Jordi Belair. Letters by Dave Lamphere. Uh, and, and for those not familiar, so this is a digital first series. And um, it, it's basically the continuation of, of, of Superman in terms of, you know, Superman the movie from, from the uh, original creator or director, Richard Donner, who directed 
uh, all of number one and most of number two, which were sort of filmed simultaneously. And, and it really was, you know, part one, part two. And then supposedly uh, he was signed on for a third movie where he was going to explore Brainiac as uh, as the villain. Um, but there was a falling out and he didn't end up finishing the uh, the second uh, movie. And then obviously never did the, the third movie wasn't involved with it. So this is sort of um, Robert Venditti's imagining of, of maybe what Donner had planned. Uh, now, Robert Venditti, this is his, when you talk about who his Superman is, it's very much the Christopher Reeve version. Like, you know, he's just of that generation, much like myself. Like when I picture live action Superman, the actor I picture in my head or, or what I picture in my head is Christopher Reeve. Um, even though I think Henry Cavill has done a, a great job with the material he's been given, and I'd love to see him be given a good Superman script written by somebody like Robert Venditti or Tom Taylor. That's not the, actually what's happened. He's been given garbage to work with, in my opinion, by Goyer and Zack Snyder. Um, but be that as it may, uh, because maybe because of that or, or you know, in spite of that, however you want to look at it, uh, Cavill is not even though, again, I'd love to see him reprise the role. He's just not who I picture when I picture a live action Superman. I picture Christopher Reeve. Uh, I will say in this first issue that Rolfredo Torres does a good job of, of capturing kind of the feel and the air of that movie. And even more so than that, Robert Venditti does a great job in the, the tone, the dialogue, Jordi Belair with the colors. This feels like we're inhabiting that movie universe, that Christopher Reeve Superman movie universe. And being introduced to Brainiac and the way Superman fights Brainiac and, and ultimately how the issue ends, this feels like what Superman 3 should have been. And that's not to say that I dislike Superman 3. I think Superman 4 is pretty atrocious. I think 3 with Richard Pryor, uh, a little bit of its time with the whole oil thing and the dark Superman and whatnot in, in the late 80s. But... But it was fun for what it was. I mean, Richard Pryor was a huge movie star at that time. Um, but I much rather would have had this with Richard Donner helming it and uh, and getting this version of, of Brainiac. So, you know, it's great. It's it's sort of a, a trip down memory lane. Uh, no pun intended with uh, the Margot Kidder version of Lois Lane. Uh, you know, Jimmy Olsen, uh, Perry White, uh, you know, all those movie versions from, again, my, my favorite version of, of Superman. I mean, um, going to see this in the theaters as a kid, I think I was like four years old. Um, and yeah, it's part of the reason Superman's my favorite character. It's one of my earliest memories as a kid going to, to check this out. And um, I, I'm just glad that it exists. I'm glad that uh, Robert Venditti's the one writing it. I can't see, wait to see how it all plays out. And in a perfect world, um, DC Warner Brothers would decide that this series sold well enough and it's a good enough idea from Robert Venditti's script to make this, make this Superman movie with Henry Cavill uh, as Superman um, and tell Robert Venditti's story with with you know, of, of finally a, a live action version of Brainiac five, instead of doing the Superman movie where we again get Lex Luthor, uh, you know, enough, enough with Lex Luthor. He's, he's becoming like the Joker at this point. Um, and, and don't even get me started on Jesse Eisenberg as it's like worst casting in movie history. In my opinion, I agree. The it's not, I didn't worse. Yeah. I, I, I like off the top of my head. I cannot think of worse casting uh, in any role 
other, other than Jesse Eisenberg is Lex Luthor. Absolutely terrible. Um, so yeah, I think this really works. If I, if I had any complaint, um, I wouldn't mind if the art was a little more detailed, uh, but that's not really Wilfredo Torres's style. Um, and, and his style does give it sort of a, a timeless feel as opposed to if you went with an artist like uh, an Yvonne Reese or Jim Lee, uh, where it would be more detailed, it, it definitely would be more rooted in the DC house style, but then it might not age quite as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought this, I, this was really fun. Like I just enjoyed it so much and it, it really felt like I was back, uh, in the theater watching a, a Christopher Reeve Superman movie. For me, this just worked. So I don't know. How did you feel about it, Rocky? Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, my, my, my favorite, you know, I'm right. The same age demographic as you, you know, I'm, uh, I was six or seven. And when I saw Superman, the movie and, and it, it's, it's my favorite superhero. Su- it's my favorite superhero movie of all time. And it always will be, you know, that's for purely nostalgic reasons. So it will always be number one and followed closely by, uh, probably Avengers Endgame. But, uh, yeah, no, I, you you nailed it. It this captures the feel. A, a credit to uh, Robert Venditti here. Uh, that you know he does. He captures the voices of uh, Clark Lois, and I found that he captured Perry White particularly well. <laughs> For some reason, I just I, I remember Perry White so well. I want to give a shout out here to Richard Donner. There is a beautiful full page uh, tribute to Richard Donner, who died uh, died this year, and I'm just going to read the quote. Uh, this is a quote from Richard Donner. The main aim of our interpretation is to uphold and enhance a great American myth. The key to the whole concept of the film is verisimilitude. We, we've treated it as truth. And that's, that's why we believe that a man can fly. It's due to this man, this, this man's efforts. And of course, Christopher Reeve as well, who, who was Superman. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the end. It's the end of an era, but it's, it's what a, what a, fantastic place to put that tribute to Richard Donner and, and to read that quote as you, as you, as you get into this, especially for, for myself and old, I guess you could call us where we're old timers. Maybe we, it, it, you know, really prepared me for, for this. And then seeing, uh, you know, Marlon Brando <laughs> as Jorel there and, and, uh, with, and Laura and, and this, the same quotes and it just start, you know, it's, it's just, it's just great. You know, one thing I'm glad is that they didn't have the, they didn't have the technology back then. It would have, the special effects would have been terrible if had they tried to have done a Brainiac villain, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'm I'm glad that um I'm glad that they that they didn't. Uh and I'm glad I, we got this comic book. I you know, uh th- this is very by the numbers. Uh, I get more out of this comic because of it reminds me of Christopher Reeve. It reminds me of Margaret Kidder and I had a crush on Margaret Kidder when I was a kid and, you know, and I, I just, I love, I just love the feel of this. The plot here is not sophisticated, uh, but I, I enjoy the Easter eggs. Uh, I mean, people will note we got Schuster, uh, Schuster's station is destroyed by, by Brainiac. Uh, of course, Joe Schuster being one of the creators of Superman. We got this beautiful uh, full page spread here with, you know, Christopher Reeve. Revealing the S. I mean, this is a. I mean, man, who wouldn't want to own this page? If I, if for the comic book, I would want love to own this page. I'd love to contact the artist, uh, Wilfredo Torres. I'm sure he's keeping that for his own for himself. But just yeah, 
well, well done. Uh, again, uh, some of the scenes are right out of the movie. Uh, there's a couple of panels here that, you know, you could tell, you could tell he took it right for a screenshot, right from some scenes in the, in Superman one, two, and three with Christopher Reed flying and looking to the right, looking to the left. I mean, this has so many callbacks and the fact that it's interspersed and, and with, with a, with a battle against Brainiac, this is, this is a lot of fun. And, you know, We'll never get that movie uh, with Christopher Reeve and Brainiac, but man, that's what comic books f- are, are for, and it's it's just a shame that we had to wait this long to get this type of tribute. But I'm, I'm it's worth the wait, and I'll, I'll definitely be getting this whole series just because of how it makes me feel, and it, it just puts a shit eating grin on my face, and it, you know it's good. It's it's Christopher it's it's Christopher Reeve. It's Brainiac. What's what's not to love? Yeah, again, it just. What could have been, you know, yeah. if if if, uh, if Richard Donner didn't have that falling out with the producers of uh, of Superman, uh, you just wonder how different it might have been. Brainiac may may have been elevated as a Superman villain. Um, yeah, things would have been so so different. Um, like I was trying to think when I was reading this, who who would I have chosen to play Brainiac? I don't know if Richard Donner had anybody in mind to play him back then. But That's a good question. Well, an actor from back then, my God, I'm not. Yeah, I don't, when did do you know when Yul Brenner died? I don't know. I think he, he would have probably, been he would have yeah. been a good choice he somewhere around yeah. that time. Or, yeah, early mid '80s, I think, is when he passed away. So I don't, I don't know, but yeah. Uh, anyway, like I said, uh, that's going to do it for uh, for this episode. We, we we're going to have a part two, which covers the other, uh, I think, seven books. One of them being uh, Wonder Woman: Black and Gold, which obviously has multiple stories. So we'll end up with another uh, another episode, probably just as long as this one, talking about the, uh, the rest of the books. We have Icon and Rocket number two. We have uh, Superman: Son of Kal El number two, which is a really interesting uh, issue. We have Robin number five. Uh, we have the latest issue of Detective Comics, latest issue of Wonder Woman. So there's still uh, plenty to talk about in the second half. So be sure you come back and join us for that. Uh, as far as uh, upcoming episodes, I, I really I've been so busy uh, wrapping up loose ends with the auction and just with the day job uh, that I really haven't had a time had time to do a lot of other episodes. But what I have been doing is a lot of interviews lately for a lot of creator-owned books. So I hope you guys are all paying attention to those. Uh, I only bring books to you that I myself am backing or or. Um, I'm really interested in. Uh, so again, I highly encourage you to go and, and check those out, uh, especially the uh, current campaign going for Area 51, the Helix Project number three. Uh, Trevor's getting pretty worried that it's not going to fund, and you know I really want to see him succeed and, and get yeah. this first comic series. Definitely back that out. book up. I, I'm, I'm yeah. a little behind. I want to review, put out a review for number two, and that, that that's what I'll have coming up. And uh, I definitely encourage people to pick it up as well. So. He'll make yeah. it. He'll make it. Yeah, it's it's a great story, and the art is fantastic. It, it's definitely kind of a a notch above most uh, creator owned books, especially when you talk about somebody's first series as a as a comic creator. So be sure and go and uh, go and check that out. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Um, don't forget if you're listening to this audio only, head over to YouTube, give Rocky a uh, a like for the video. Be sure you're subscribed to uh, Comic Boom channel ring that notification bell so you get notified whenever he has new content coming up. Conversely, if you are watching us on YouTube, we really appreciate you joining us. 
uh, if you want to listen to just the audio versions, because, you know, New Comics Wednesday and, and those interviews I was just talking about are only on the uh, audio-only version of the Comic Source, uh, just go and subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast platform is, whether it's Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you know, uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, whatever it is, we're, we're everywhere. Or you can just go to your podcast app on your smart device and uh, search for the comic source and find us and, uh, and subscribe so you're sure not to miss anything. So uh, as always, Rocky and I appreciate the support and for you guys joining us. Uh, I, I do think, you know, brighter days are ahead for DC. This is certainly better stuff that's been coming out over the last six months than yeah. we necessarily expected when uh, we were reviewing Future and, and State. I, I, was, I was pretty worried, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I should add that this is part one of the comics for a week of August 24th. I know you mentioned that, but just to be clear, part two, when we review the other comics that came out this week for August 24th, are much better. I, I, I'm going to, at least I, I enjoyed the, the next batch of comics we're going to be reviewing in part two of this uh, week of August 24th, I, I think are much better than this, than the comics we reviewed in the, in this particular video. So, you know, I tried to, I tried to divide them up equally. I, I, I thought, cause I thought Batman reptilian was really good. I thought Batman Superman was really good. I thought Mr. Miracle was really good. Yeah. So for me, yeah, for me, it was kind of, it was kind of 50 action comics was really good. Um, but yeah, there were a couple that that come up in part two that I I wasn't a big fan of, but but maybe we're not on the same page there. So again, you guys will have to come back to uh, to find out. So be sure you join us for part two. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, again, part two coming up, and it'll be out the same day as, as part one. We're just dividing it up to give you guys uh, a bit of a break. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Really appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.